Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Hello, welcome to episode four of Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Rendon, director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In our previous episode, we discussed Venezuela health system, which is in shambles due to blackouts, supply shortages, resurging diseases, malnutrition, and the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. In this episode, we will be focusing on the status of Venezuela's economy and what it means for Venezuelans who are suffering through the humanitarian crisis. When I traveled to the Colombian border, I met a Venezuelan migrant named Alberto, who expressed his belief at how bad the situation has gotten. Look, what can I tell you? I'm 35 years old. I got to Cucuta, Colombia 15 days ago. I never imagined that our country would go through what it's going through right now, with a regime that is itself exploiting and stealing, filling their own pockets. I'll tell you something. I, as a Venezuelan, and you, as a Venezuelan, I'd rather not be living through what I'm experiencing now. Alberto, like many of us, never thought Venezuela would spire so deeply into crisis, both politically and economically. When it comes to Venezuela's economy, there's a lot of ground to cover from hyperinflation to dollarization to external debt. To unpack this topic, we have joined by Herbert Torres, a senior associate at the Future of Venezuela Initiative and the Americas program here at CSIS. Herbert is a Venezuelan economist and a senior scientist for Gallup Consulting. He has consulted for the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the United Nations. He has also served on the board of directors of the International Monetary Fund. Herbert previously served as a Venezuelan minister of privatization. Thank you so much for joining us, Herbert. Thank you for inviting me. Now, let's talk about hyperinflation. I talked to several Venezuelan migrants, as I mentioned, on the Colombian border. And when I asked them why they left, one of the most common reasons they mentioned was hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is a phenomenon in which a country's currency maintains an inflation rate of over 50% for at least 30 consecutive days. Venezuela has been in a hyperinflationary economy since 2016. In 2019, inflation reached 10 million percent. Up next, you will hear from Frey there, one migrant I spoke on on the border about how hyperinflation is affecting his day-to-day basis. 
It's terrible. You ask for a price one day, and the next day it's more expensive. So what you're saving to buy things is not enough. Because by the next day, when you go to buy something, they tell you, no, the price went up, so you can't actually buy what you really need. Herbert, why is Venezuela continuing to experience hyperinflation? Well, it may be useful for our listeners a little bit of a context. The Venezuelan economy has experienced in the last six years, since 2014, one of the biggest contractions known in modern history. Definitely the worst out of countries in war. The economy has contracted by around 62%, 62, from 2014 to 2019. So this is not counting the contraction that the economy experienced this year, which, you know, uh, was going to take place without effect of the coronavirus, and now it's going to be worse, of course, because of the coronavirus. Uh, and the National Assembly is projecting, just for this year, that the economy will decline another 40%. So you can imagine, uh, 62% from 2014 to 2019, and now this year, another 40%. So this is brutal. This is unprecedented in our hemisphere. And what happened basically is that after a long period of very high oil revenues and massive and accelerated external indebtedness, which everything collapsed. And everything collapsed because of the socialist economic model that was implemented, extreme corruption, mismanagement, and incompetence. The government ended up running out of money, and when it ran out of money, it started printing money. And this is what the government has been doing, you know, since three years ago, uh, very intensively, printing a lot of money, which has caused inflation and hyperinflation. We have been going through a period of hyperinflation since November 2017. So it has been a period of more than two years with a very high inflation the only hyperinflation in the world. And of course, for people, it means that their salary is destroyed. What they earned is, yeah. is worthless. It doesn't buy anything. And they feel, of course, forced to leave the country. This is what's happening. This is what's going on in Venezuela right now with hyperinflation. Thank you. No, that, that's, that's a great explanation. I, I also remember you wrote a piece for CSIS. I think the title was The Venezuelan Drama in 12 Charts. So I think we want to highlight that on, on, on our website for this podcast because that, that way the listeners can get a deeper dive into how this is not new to Venezuela. This is a, an economic crisis that has been going for over 20 years due to the policies that Herbert was mentioning previous to, to the Chavez administration. Now, jumping into the dollarization issue and the quote-unquote Venezuela's new economy, Herbert, because the currency inflates so quickly, it is incredibly difficult to use a Bolivar for everyday life, right? The Bolivar is literally worthless. Some of the migrants I interviewed said they rely on other currencies. For example, Alicia, who lived in Venezuela near the Colombian border, used the Colombian peso instead of Venezuela's active currency, the Bolivar Soberano. For me to go buy something at the bodega, I have to take pesos, even if it's just 2,000 pesos, to buy something for the children to eat, because I can't even understand those soberanos. To go buy gas, I had to exchange pesos for soberanos, 
And what am I supposed to do if I don't even understand that money? I pay them pesos because we sincerely do not understand that. That is not what money used to be like in Venezuela. Now, in the rest of the country, we're seeing more and more Venezuelans using the U.S. dollar as currency. By some accounts, Venezuela is now about 50% dollarized. It could be even higher than that. And stores, stores known as uh, bodegones, which operate in U.S. dollars mainly, are becoming more and more popular. We have also seen a rise in cryptocurrencies. As some of our audience knows, Venezuela has become a hub for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ether, and not the Petro, which was a failed attempt by the Maduro regime to use crypto, but by other means and other decentralized cryptocurrencies. So, Herbert, I know you went to Venezuela recently. You did study, analyze this issue. I want to start by asking you, you know, Maduro has been long time a critic of the U.S. as an imperialist force, and he's at odds no, with, with his and the Chavez revolution. So why is he now embracing U.S. currency and liberalizing the Venezuelan's economy? Yes, in some of the economic decisions and public pronouncement, Maduro has turned 180 degrees. Well, he has been forced to do that because of the failure of his model, his policies, his extreme corruption and incompetence. He basically ran out of money. He no longer has the abundant oil revenues he had before, nor does he have access to international financing anymore. So he had to resort to the private sector for it to import whatever it wants to import using their own capital, their own foreign exchange, and to produce in the country whatever they are capable of producing now. And in order for the private sector to do that, the government has had to let them set, for example, their own prices, the prices of the goods they bring or they want to produce in the country. Maduro also knows that for the private sector to do all that, it needs a stable currency. And the national currency, the Bolivar, as you just said, and people are saying, it's not a stable currency, it's worthless. Actually, the Bolivar has lost 95% of his value. Can you believe it? 95% of his value in the past six years. So it's very significant that this regime, the Maduro regime, that has shown so much hatred toward the United States and everything associated with it, today it has to accept that the economy has been dollarized, that the dollar has become the main reference to set prices, and the currency in which the largest volume of transactions are being made in the country. Now, uh, Moises, I think it's important to highlight the fact that although there has been certain economic liberalization, the response from the private sector has been very limited. What some individuals or firms have done is just start importing different types of products, mainly consumer goods that they sell in dollars in some types of stores, as you mentioned, uh, the the Mm so-called bodegones. Uh, But the reason they do that is that the liberalization that has taken place in the country is only partial and it's a de facto dollarization. It's not guaranteed within any legal framework or rule of law. For example, the government has simply stopped enforcing price control. But all the legislation that violates um, economic freedom, that constrains the private sector, that talks about price control is still there. So the government can use it at any time against any particular firm or in any particular circumstance they they want to use it. 
uh, to impose it on the private sector. This is why the response has been limited. Yeah. Now, so as you said, like now after we've seen this 180 degree shift from Maduro's trying to liberalize the economy, I mean, this has triggered some sort of economic boom, right? And some analysts have started comparing Venezuela to a tropical China. Um, but this boom is mostly limited to the, to the wealthy, to the politically connected. And you know this better, and you've been in Venezuela multiple times. This, the dollarization is only exacerbating the inequality gap that is in the country. Many Venezuelans receive remittances in dollars, but there is still an entire sector of the Venezuelan economy, maybe more than half of the country's population, that doesn't have any access to dollars at all. So what do dollarization and these other economic measures mean for Venezuela's poorest and the majority of the citizens? Well, yes, I went to Venezuela wanting to see whether uh, those uh, measure, recent measure or decisions by the government were producing any significant impact in terms of the economy being able to start recovering. But what I found and my conclusion was that uh, it was a limited impact. Again, basically, it was produced to some actors, some very often connected to the government, importing stuff consumer goods that were sold, you know, at dollars in, in foreign exchange in, in some areas of specific stores. No one that I, I knew um, has been, you know, investing uh, in a new plant, trying to produce, generating jobs, which is the way it could impact the general population. So the, the impact has been limited in terms of reducing scarcity, but at a very high prices that people cannot allow to buy those products. And dollarization, you know, has become a very extended phenomenon now, as you mentioned, but it just highlights or emphasizes or accentuates the disparities, the inequalities in the Venezuelan society because then there are those who have dollar access to dollar, like those who receive remittances that are not more than 30%, those that are connected to the government, and a small portion of the Venezuelan society, the higher middle class that have savings in dollars, and they right. can bring it to the country and use it there for whatever they need it. But for most of the people, they either don't have access to a foreign exchange or whatever they get is very limited. It's whatever uh, their family or friends send them uh, monthly, which, by the way, one of the impacts of the coronavirus crisis, and, and it plays the same for the entire world, is that those remittances um, have been declining, estimated in 20%. So dollarization has effectively made more transparent and, and the inequalities in the Venezuelan society, which have gone extreme and also accentuated disparities itself. Yeah, and it's ironic, right? Because the poor citizens were the ones that Chavez and Maduro in the first place were trying to protect, but now they're the most vulnerable and they're the most impacted by the whole crisis. Also, we haven't even talked about the fuel shortages that the country is also suffering. But let's jump into the privatization and debt issue and, and kind of try to keep ourselves on the macroeconomic picture of Venezuela. As you know, when Chavez came to power, he pitched his revolution as the antithesis of neoliberalism, nationalizing key industries and re rejecting institutions like the International Monetary Fund, 
The Chavez government promoted anti-capitalist rhetoric for years. Here's what Deber, one of the migrants I interviewed, had to say about it. They criticize the empire. They talk so much about an empire. They talk about a North American empire, an empire of capitalism and gross neoliberalism. But come on, if we're going an empire, they talk about socialism, but then they're a socialist empire, because socialist empires also exist. But ironically, Maduro has begun exploring ways to privatize the oil industry. So, Herbert, why is this privatization happening now? How have these developments been affected by record low oil prices and the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, again, here, the Maduro regime has been forced to accept the realities of the markets. Public prices have all collapsed, including the country's main company, uh, the oil company, the state-owned company. So Maduro, the regime, has no longer money to keep them alive, to invest, keep investing money, throwing money at, at those companies to try to recover them. So the only way for them to, uh, they see uh, for services to continue or companies or firms, public ones, continue to operate is to hand it over, to hand them over to other actors uh, for them to operate those entities. And of course, the way the government is doing it is very questionable. They are privatization that are taking place without any transparency. Uh, so there is no any bidding process. Uh, they are allocated to people close to family, you know, of the member friends of the regime. And there, there are no changes in the regulatory framework, those sectors where those companies are operating. So it's a very poorly done privatization as I said before, is very obscure, non-transparent at all. But there is something else too going on in Venezuela, very interesting, Moises, is that there is a massive and perverse privatization, the, the type of privatization that nobody wants to happen uh, going on in Venezuela, which is, let me give you an example. When I was there, I was in Venezuela. I, I had my phone there that stopped working, uh, you call the company I did, the telephone company, several times for them to come and fix it. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't respond. So at the end, someone who worked for the company shows up and offers you to fix it uh, for an amount of money. could be $20, $30, $40 uh, that you have to pay to him. It's, it's not to the company. <laughs> and of course, yeah. it is 20 or 40 times the minimum salary in Venezuela. The same happens with water. People may have to buy water from a private provider. There is those big trucks that carry huge tanks of water and, and they sell the water. Sometimes very, very expensive. Uh, full tank of water can cost $20, which is again several times the minimum salary. So this is a type of privatization. Services that were previously provided by public entities are being provided by individuals or firms, but not in a regular, very well-established, uh, you know, framework. It is just right. uh, in a chaotic way. And the same happens with dog medicines and hospitals. People go to those hospitals where there are no medicines, there is nothing, and they have to very often buy the, their own stuff and bring it, even their own food, to be able to, to feed their family, whoever is at the hospital. These are type of, I call them perverse privatizations because, again, 
We are very much in favor of bringing the private sector as much as possible, but the way it has ha is happening in Venezuela is the worst possible way. Yeah, no, that sounds a little bit like corruption, but also black markets. And that's it's what a combination of all those things. Yeah, and there's a black market for everything in Venezuela. So you can get anything in Venezuela as long as you have dollars. <laughs> so, and that includes water, that includes medicine, <laughs> But the sad story is that most of Venezuelans don't have access to dollars and, and the whole production machinery just collapsed. So in a way, it's very sad to see, again, that the most vulnerable people are the, the ones that have more impact. Let's talk a little about debt. I know this is a country that has one of the highest external debt in probably the modern history. Venezuela owes over $200 billion to bondholders, bilateral lenders, and other creditors. What is the status of the external debt, and why is all of this affected by, you know, the constitutional struggle between the Maduro regime and the legitimate government led by Juan Guaidó? Yeah, uh, well, the immense external debt is one of the most serious problems that the country has now, and one of the most serious obstacles to his reconstructions. To start with, we have the amount of that debt, which some estimate somewhere between 170 billion or even 200 billion dollars, which is huge in itself. But considering that the size of the Venezuelan economy has been reduced enormously and that it may be 60 billion dollars, approximately 60 billion dollars. If you assume that the total external debt is 180 billion dollars, well, you have a debt that is three times the size of the economy. That makes us the most indebted economy in the world. Japan was the, the most indebted until a few years ago, a little bit more than two times the size of the economy. Well, the Venezuelan debt could be around three times the size of, of the economy. And there are very serious problems with that debt. It is very large in the first place. It was negotiated in very disadvantages uh, terms. There was little transparency in the way it was taken or, or acquired. And whatever money came from you know, that process was lost. It's lost. Uh, it's not invested anywhere. You don't see anywhere uh, where that money was invested. So uh, we have a huge debt and the country is in default. So that debt is not being served. For that reason, there are now multiple threats from creditors who are trying to collect those debts and they have filed lawsuits to appropriate assets, to seize assets that were given as collateral in those negotiations. And then we have the example of Citgo, the oil company that Venezuela owns in the United States and is the country's main asset overseas. Well, the Maduro regime simply stop paying and, you know, is not paying any attention to, to that problem. On the other hand, the Guaido interims government put together a highly competent team of professionals who has been trying to negotiate with, credit, with creditors to restructure that debt. And so far, they've been successful in, in terms of, for example, preventing state assets being taken over by creditors. But it's a, it's a very serious issue uh, for the country, for its magnitude, for its size, and for so many questions that are there about its legality, which makes things very complicated. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense, Herbert. And and the other issue is that there is not enough money to pay all this debt. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think we're going to be focusing on other episode of Voices of Venezuela about the oil sector in Venezuela. Because there, there's a lot of misconception thinking that the oil, I mean, because Venezuela has so much oil underground, is going to be enough to pay all the debt and all the bills for the reconstruction and and as you know more than um, me the oil sector is collapsed and it will take years if not decades to rebuild so again that's another issue we'll be focusing on but however i would like to wrap up this up by talking about what a transitional or a day after government needs to do in venezuela from a macroeconomic perspective right i mean a day after government whoever that is whoever gets elected under democratic free and fair conditions will need to implement measures to stabilize the economy but this government will also be inheriting a whole host of very serious issues right venezuelans are malnourished water and electricity infrastructure are crumbling non-state armed groups have invaded the country south Illegal mining is devastating the Amazon, and the list goes on and on. So from an economic perspective, what do you think are the key policies that a day after government must prioritize if it hopes to put Venezuela on track to be a stable and prosperous democracy? Wow, this is a difficult thing to do. There are so many things to do <laughs> that needs to be done that setting priorities is a real challenge in Venezuela. But I think that at least there are a few that you can clearly say are, are really important. The first one is to put together a competent team of highly credible professionalists. Second, to announce to the country and to the world a comprehensive program of reforms for the short, the medium, the long term. This is essential uh, to tell all economic agents, uh, national and international actors, what you want to do, in which direction you intend to go. Third, and as part of these reforms, you have to leave all type of restrictions that you have imposed on citizens, on individuals to exercise uh, any economic activity they may want to exercise. You have to give people back full freedom to work, to produce, to trade, to import. So fourth, I would say you have to request international financial assistance, uh, starting with the multilaterals. And here the IMF will be, you know, the first one to go to. Venezuela will need a significant amount of resources to kickstart the economy. That money provided by the multilateral would be used to pay for imports, for example, that the private sector needs to activate domestic uh, firms to finance their recovery of public services and also to finance transfers to the poorest sector of the population that you urgently need them. You need to renegotiate external debt. You need to advance a very ambitious privatization program, a transparent one. You need to recapitalize the Venezuelan banking system, which is, you know, in terrible conditions. There is no credit in Venezuela, and you need credit for firms to be able to uh, engage in, in, in economic activity. And we also need many institutionally important reforms. For example, we need to return independence to the monetary authority, to the central bank. You have to give back authority to the local uh, governments uh, to give them control of uh, services that they were under their control so that they can you know, play a role 
in yeah. the reconstruction of the economy. So these are some of the, I think, most important things that have to be done uh, at the very beginning of a reconstruction process in Venezuela. Without a doubt, the, the role of the international community will be key no, to help Venezuela to do all of these tasks and things that need to be done to, to get back on its feet. However, it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you again for providing light and knowledge to this complex issue in such a short time. I really appreciate your time. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. To learn more about this issue, we encourage you to read Herbert's piece, The Venezuelan Drama in 14 Charts, which can be found at csas.org. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapolis Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Mm-hmm.